Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play. And download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is David Yon, Head of Global Industries Marketing for IBM. David's work at IBM includes conceiving and implementing a broad range of collaborative innovation programs, including the IBM Innovation Jam. David is part of a closing innovation keynote with IBM's Nicholas D'Onofrio and author Hilary Austin and myself at the Advancing Creative Thinking, Imagination to Innovation Conference in Ridgefield, Connecticut on April 28th. We are showcasing several conference presenters in Creativity and Play interviews, including Irish poet Anne O'Reilly, artist and activist Lily Yeh, Artistry Unleashed author Hilary Austin, play expert Joan Almond, and New York Times tech columnist David Polk. David Young, welcome to Creativity and Play. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Well, IBM, of course, as most people know, is certainly known for being an innovative company and inventing and innovating many different things. And one of the things that I think a lot of people have probably seen in the last year or so has been the the IBM CEO study, which found across um, global CEOs the importance and value of creativity and and really articulating that. And I I suspect, on the one hand, it's a little bit out of your scope because it's another part of the IBM business, but I think very much relates to the, the work that you've done around innovation and continue to do. And I wonder if you can, first of all, just talk sort of to that broader point on the importance of creativity and innovation across industry in general before we talk about some of the work you've done at IBM specifically. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it is a consistent, you know, the, the study reveals something that we've seen consistently over the last, oh, I'd say probably five, six years, a really increased focus from uh, business leaders, uh, government leaders, university leaders, really from, you know, all parts of sort of the, the, the global ecosystem, uh, looking at how do they drive innovation. And, and it seems almost counterintuitive given that we've been in a, you know, sort of a tough economic uh, uh, climate uh, globally for the last three, four years now or so. But uh, actually, innovation is the way you work your way out of this. And, and we, we, we sometimes joke uh, that, that in, innovation is, um, you know, the mother of necessity. Necessity is the mother of innovation. <laughs> you know, yeah. doing a, a twist on the old phrase because the companies, the the organizations that distinguish themselves and make the greatest difference during tough economic times are those that innovate. You know, you look at what is happening with Apple. They've had the most successful run in, in you know, many companies' histories over the last three or four years. IBM's run during this time has been because of our ability not only to innovate technology, but to innovate business models, to innovate ways that we approach corporate culture, innovate the ways in which we interact with the communities in which we operate. And so innovation is the way you differentiate. Innovation is the way you not only stay alive, but you, you set the pathway for the future. Well, David, how has IBM reinvented itself over the years, and then particularly in the last five years or so, and what gives you the passion, both personally and professionally, to focus on what matters, both at IBM and also globally? 
Yeah, well, I'll try to parse that into, into two chunks, and they're both, uh, you know, one of them's a big chunk. Uh, as, as some people may be aware, we celebrated our centennial last year uh, in June, actually, so we're about to be 101 years old. Uh, but uh, the IBM Corporation has reinvented itself uh, probably, one could argue, six or seven distinct times. The IBM uh, business machines of the teens and the 1920s, you know, we're talking about uh, meat slicers, cheese scales. <laughs> Cash registers, things like that. Uh, time, you know, t- punch cards, uh, you know, t- time clocks, and, and things like that. And uh, you know, we we're lucky that our, in effect, our founder, um, you know, that uh, IBM represents sort of the coming together of three different companies in, in 1911, and 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 sort of the founder for for all intents and purposes in 1914 was Thomas J. Watson, Sr. And he, he was a remarkable innovator. Uh, you know, he he invaded, you know, almost every company in the world now has, uh, you know, a set of core beliefs or core values. IBM was the first company to ever articulate those, and Watson was the one. And what was very interesting is he thought that that was the most important thing about a company. That was its DNA, and that, you know, business environments may change, products may change, um, where you operate may change, um, geopolitical issues may change, but if you remain true to sort of your core values, your your, your core beliefs, you know it, it, you have a very clear trajectory on how to go forward. So IBM had to reinv- uh, reinvent itself many times, um, as, and you know even really the second iteration wasn't really computing it was you know large uh, punch card tabulating machines we helped to really uh, uh modernize the census um uh, for many countries uh, during the 1920s and 1930s we made the social security program possible uh, you know it was the biggest accounting program ever in the history of the world when it was um Launch probably still is, uh, and it was IBM technology that made that happen. The dawn of the computing age, uh, we really uh, reinvented ourselves in the 1960s with probably one of the biggest bets ever made in business history, a $5 billion bet in $1960 on uh, something called the System 360, which was basically the, the forefather of the mainframe computer. And, you know, uh, there was the PC era, and now really we're a services and software company. And that uh, is, is partially a result of sort of the one glitch in our, our history, which was in the early 19, late 1980s and early 1990s. We almost died. Um, we, we just we lost sight of the markets. We stopped innovating. Um, we, we got very insular in what we were doing, and the company almost died. And I think, you know, that actually, you know, for today's IBM, even though it's almost 20 years ago now, that is the defining moment because the the there's still leaders from that era that are in the very senior ranks of the company now. People have not forgotten what that was like, and there's a hunger to constantly innovate and adapt to the marketplace and be ahead of the marketplace. Uh, what, what we're doing right now with something called Smarter Planet, it's not an advertising campaign. It's not a marketing campaign. It is a strategy for the company, and what we're trying to do is, is build intelligence into the world's networks we're trying to interconnect everything that's happening and, and, and then take the insight that's coming out of that to help companies help 
uh, governments, help universities, all make smarter decisions uh, based on what is now technologically possible. So that answers the first part of your question. I'll pause to see if you have any questions about that, and then I can talk a little bit about the personal side. Go ahead and uh, jump into the yeah, uh, personal no, on, side. On the, on the personal side, I think you know it. it I think you know. Yeah, I, I think you know. In, in some ways, you know, passion for innovation and, and reinvention, you know, is is a characteristic of some humans and, and, and not others, right? Some some are content in the status quo and so forth. IBM seems to attract people that are forward thinkers, and, and you know, perhaps that may, that may you know, on a personal level be why I find the place so interesting. I started my career uh, in the research labs at the T.J. Watson Research Center, named after our founder. And it's just amazing the type of people that you see just walking around the hallways there, people that, uh, while very humble, have invented some of the most uh, transformative uh, technologies in, in, in modern history, and you know the the people that invented the relational database, the people that re- invented the memory chip, the people that invented the hard disk drive, uh, things that some things that have come and gone, but really uh, you know mind-boggling talent. You know the the person that the very first person in the history of the world that moved an individual atom, and that and it may not sound like a big deal because just by the, you know as you're moving around right now, holding a phone or or you know touching a computer, you're moving you know, millions of atoms, this guy figured out how to move one at a time and then two and, and so forth. So some remarkable people. So being in an environment like that just encourages you to want to innovate, to be constantly thinking about what's around the corner, what's next. And our clients are looking for that. You know, the, the, they, they, they're counting on us because, we're, you know, we're one of the few companies with a truly global span. We work in 170-plus countries around the world. We have engagements with all sorts of different size companies and, 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 and organizations. So we get tremendous insight into what's happening in industry, what's happening um, on so many different levels, and we're able to apply that uh, more broadly because of the connections we're able to make and sort of the ecosystem we have of, of innovators around the world. So, you know, it, it's that sort of environment that just gets you jazzed every day about, about what's possible and, and innovation's reward. In fact, we actually consider it one of our three core values as a company, innovation that matters not only for our company but for the world. And it, and it, it truly is an aspiration that I think most IBMers um, think is, is basic to, to being part of the company. So it sounds like you've, you've stepped outside of the rule book and you stepped into collaboration that goes outside of hierarchical system so that it's not the boss down, it's the bottom up and you embrace collaborative ensemble experience it sounds like we really do try to do that i i think you know probably it was around oh i don't know eight years ago now we really started doing some in-depth studying um of of what is innovation and part of it i'll be honest was because we 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 almost had too much weight on our shoulders of being a technological innovator um yeah, it's part of a team that was responsible each year for publicizing the fact that we amass more patents than any other company in the world. And we continue to do it. I think it's been something like 18 
19 years now that we've had by far the most patents. I think we we registered close to 6,000 patents in the U.S. last year, which is just mind-boggling because I think when the, the streak started, it was about 1,000. We were like the first company to do 1,000 in a year, and then 2,000, and then 3,000, you know, up to 6,000. But innovation is not just technology. You know, in, innovation is, you, you can, as I said earlier, innovate business models. You need to innovate culture. You need to, innovation needs to work on multiple levels. And when we were doing this study, really looking, um, I think, very thoughtfully at the characteristics of innovation, we realized that it was changing. In the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, when our research labs were really coming to the forefront, you know, up there with Xerox PARC, Bell Labs, which, you know, by the way, aren't really around anymore. You know, only IBM is, is it really has this robust research engine still. Um you know, a guy could sit off in, in an ivory tower, and it usually was a guy, so, to, you know, and, and and conceive great things all on his own, work it out on a chalkboard, submit it, and, and change the world. But because the world has become interconnected, you know, Friedman is was really right with, you know, the world is getting flat, you know, and, and ideas circumnavigate the globe in a matter of seconds. I could be talking to you right now and someone could be sending me an instant message about something that happened in China or an idea that they had while they were in uh, Cape Town or while they were in Mumbai or Rio or wherever. And the ability to share ideas instantaneously, you know, you know it, 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 and Twitter wasn't around. Facebook wasn't around when we made this with this observation. So you can just imagine what the exponential nature in which it, it's, it's increased. But we, we realized that innovation was becoming increasingly open. You know, it was impossible to sort of, you know, really put ring fences around your ideas. It was becoming collaborative because of this 24-7 world that we were really truly living in for the first time. It was becoming multidisciplinary, and that's an important facet here because right, it used to be the physics guy sitting in one part of the lab, the chemist sitting in another part of the lab, the mathematician sitting in another part of the lab. When you start mixing them up, all sorts of interesting new things happen. And and so these, these sort of these four characteristics of open, collaborative, multidisciplinary, and global began to shape our thinking about how innovation should be done and how it was actually being done. So we started creating programs that reflected that. And we would do, you know, once a year, massive online brainstormings with our entire employee population. In fact, as we, you know, I, I talked about Thomas Watson identifying a set of basic beliefs for the company. You know, they, they, they served as well for about 80 years, and, and I'll be honest, they, they did get a little bit dated. And, and uh, our, our CEO, our previous CEO, Sam Palmozano, uh, uh, kind of was taking stock of what was happening in the world around 2002, 2003, and he realized a lot of companies had values statements. Those companies included Enron. Tyco, you know, WorldCom, all, all these companies that were mired in scandals and, and, and horrible things, they didn't, the, the, the values didn't mean anything because they weren't from the people. And, and Sam was perhaps the first profound thing he did as CEO was say, look, I, I could sit off in the corner office someplace, you know, with, with my board or my, you know, my direct reports and dictate a set of values for the company. But wouldn't it be a lot more real? 
you know, if it came from the people. And he challenged us to have this global brainstorming. We'd already been using some techniques on that, but we had this global brainstorming, and it was remarkable because about 140 or 150,000 of our employees participated over a 72-hour period. And we didn't ask them what should the values of the company be. They knew they were working on, on identifying what the values should be, but we asked them questions that were provocative. You know, when have you seen IBM or IBMers at their best? What were they doing and why? What would happen if IBM disappeared overnight? How would the world change? <laughs> Questions like that that really got you thinking about what we truly stood for. And and while the um, the three that came out of it aren't necessarily, you wouldn't go, wow, th- those are radical. I you know, would have never thought those or whatever. They're actually, they're, they're kind of very obvious. Um, what what made them so powerful is that they came from the people, and and you know I I, I was I, my my team ran that that program, and and when we announced what the final three values were, uh, within the first 24 hours, uh, Mr. Palmazano got uh, about 3,000 emails, and I know that because I I read every single one. It was they came through my office, and to his credit, he read every single one of them as well. Uh, but the emotional outpouring. From people, whether they had been with the company 35 years or four days, and we got emails from both, was was remarkable because it touched a nerve. People saw it, but also people. What was interesting, they weren't shy. They they saw the gaps, and, and particularly innovation was one of the areas where they saw gaps. They said, "Yeah, you know, we do stand for innovation, but you know, it's sometimes very hard to innovate." So we had to put in place these programs that allowed people to really feel like they could innovate. And at the same time, also, we wanted to illustrate what we meant by innovation, too. So we had to design them so that by their very nature, they were open and collaborative and they were multidisciplinary and all those things that I was talking about earlier. So um, it, it has really, that's become the culture of the company over the last seven or eight years to really take advantage of what's possible technologically, but apply it within a culture that values everyone else's ideas. And, and, and whether you've been with the company four days or you're the CEO of the company, in a lot of these fora, your ideas carry equal weight. So Before lot, I give the mic back to Steve, I want to ask one additional question. Mm-hmm. Since I won't be at Aldridge uh, in the um, the conference, and um, so I'm thinking to myself, gee, when I think of IBM, what do I think of? Well, I think of uh, guys in suits, for one, yeah. <laughs> and I think of computers. What are the, what are I'm, the, I'm in jeans with a hole in the knee right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I wonder uh, how many women are on your team. And um, I, I want to bring up that question because I think it's so important to encourage uh, women and men to be involved in innovation and certainly in the students that are coming up in the in, in the educate in our educational systems and our universities. And so I wonder. About well, that. well, you you made it either deliberately or inadvertently giving me a layup here. Uh, the ninth CEO in the history of IBM was uh, came into office on January first, and her name is Ginny Rometty. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and 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 Ginny Ginny's fantastic. Ginny Ginny is one of our our, our you know it, 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 
you know, veteran sales leaders. She ran uh, our services business, our, our consulting business for seven or eight years. She ran our global sales organization for three or four years. She actually uh, has been a co-sponsor of many of our innovation programs, our Global Innovation Outlook program, a program we do with clients called Innovation Discovery. There, there's no greater champion. Uh, uh, Jenny goes out and tells all these CEOs you have to do these things and so forth. And, you know, I think IBM actually – has had a long history. I, 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 I'll say this, you know, in, in terms of a, a different form of innovation, in terms of our equal opportunity uh, policies, decades before it was law, uh, Watson um, uh, circulated a letter, it might have been the 1930s, about equal uh, pay for equal work or equal work for equal pay. And, and I, I mean, it sounds crazy, but, you know, we, we know what it was like. That was radical 80 years ago. Uh, we, we had vice presidents in, in sales positions, uh, you know, African American sales leader, Hispanic sales leader, blind. You know, just you know, trying to break the stereotype of the white male in a suit. Uh, you know, <laughs> yes. in in those time periods, uh, because it was a meritocracy. And it did not matter what the wrappings were. It did not matter what your genetics were. It was what you were capable of doing. And um, you know, I, it, 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 yes, you know, I, I'd be I'd be misleading you if I didn't say that you know the 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 image of the IBMer in a blue suit, maybe wearing a fedora and so forth, was very strong. Uh, you know, certainly during the fifties, sixties, seventies, even into the early part of the eighties. Uh, but uh, I would actually say, in terms of um, major corporations, uh, yeah, the, the culture is, is very much reflective of the individuals and, and the, you know, the, their, um, you know, their personalities and so forth nowadays. And related to the culture that you're talking about and, and your earlier comments, too, about sort of how do you translate, on one hand, the value of innovation to, you know, the people saying but sometimes it's difficult to do where the culture is not supportive of it. What is the mix within the culture to really encourage creativity and innovation and, and sort of embedded in that as you've sort of been talking about the, how to really access and implement new and good ideas? So on the one hand, the culture piece of that, and on the other hand, sort of the practical, how do you, how do you actually do it? Like what kinds of things are actually happening? Because I... I I think that what you described is certainly not unique to IBM, where almost every company, you know, says that innovation is important to what we do in our survival. <laughs> but at the same time, like yeah. it's very hard in most organizations to really do it in a you know concrete everyday sort of mindset. And you know, yeah. you guys have obviously done a lot to try to make it real and and uh, implement it. And so the culture and process part, like, what does it actually look like in practice? Yeah, you know. Yeah, I probably shouldn't underestimate how hard it is. <laughs> you know, it, it it is hard. You know, um, uh, when, when we were kicking off a few of these innovation programs, you know, uh, uh, you know, Sam Palmazano in effect had to give us license, and and he said something that at at, at the moment that I didn't really understand uh, when when we first went to him with one of the ideas that we had. He said, "If you ever get comfortable while you're doing this, you're doing it wrong." And I didn't quite get it. Really, he said, oh, "Okay, yes, sir." You know, and and actually, what he was doing was giving us tremendous license to ignore the naysayers, 
to overcome the obstacles, to get rid of roadblocks. And, and, and you know, my, my, my team that was working on the, this project called the Global Innovation Outlook, you know, it, it, it almost became, we were a small little team. And there was only like four of us at the time. And, and the other interesting thing Sam had done when, when, we, when we proposed this to him, we, we had mapped out an 18-month plan to execute it. He asked us if we could do it in five months. And, of course, you know, we, there are hierarchies. We said, yes, sir. <laughs> of course we can do it in five months. But, you know, sort of this combination of him putting this intense turnaround time on it and saying, if you ever get comfortable while you're doing this, you're doing it wrong. Uh, you know, we realized that, oh, my God, he, he, he actually freed us up to, to – to ignore things that will get in the way. And, and, and it's sort of a, bit of a motivational thing. At the end of each day, the team would sort of submit an email to me, and, and it, would, it would be all the quotes from people or emails from people who said, oh, we already do this, or you can't do that, or I, I forbid you from doing this, and so forth. And we, we just had this laundry list, and, and it would just motivate us to, to just keep on doing, th- you know, do, doing things and pushing the envelope and, and and, and and provoking, and I think because we started demonstrating that that you know when you do this, um, uh, change can happen and big ideas can emerge and so forth. You know, people are smart; they start to to climb onto it. And we were lucky because you know uh, you know one of the other people that's going to be on the the panel with us at the Aldridge is is a fantastic you know ex IBM executive. He retired a few years ago, named Nick Nadafrio. And and Nick had the credibility within the company to sort of wield the big stick. And, and, and you know, when, when Nick got behind something, when Nick said this is something that you need to believe in, folks, people believed him. You know, people bought into it because he was, you know, he he was one of the survivors. He he grew up in the labs in the '60s, you know, and 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 '70s. He was part, you know, he he saved a major portion of our business when the company was dying. You know, that he saved our mainframe business. Frankly, when the New York Times and and Fortune magazine had declared the mainframe era dead, they had written the obituary of the mainframe in 1992. Well, mainframes are still being sold. And it's because of Nick. So he had this credibility, and he he did sort of you know go out there and act as a blocker for us at times when we really needed it. So you know having a champion within an organization that is willing to uh, you you know use their currency to to buy leeway to to accomplish things does, does help. But success is is what breeds further success. So when people saw that we were we were. Um, identifying new market opportunities and and that they were getting yielding return right you know and and creating even more you know more interest from our clients and so forth you know people i think very quickly started to buy into it and um you know i think doing you know once again going back to these jams these online brainstorms we had such a visible forum you know for for you know people to see and what, what were some of the results that came out? You, you've talked about a couple of these jams that had happened that involved thousands and thousands of people in the yeah. remaining 90 seconds or so. What were some of the things sure. that came out of and, all of those ideas? Absolutely. I'm really proud to say, I mean, in the, the, the biggest innovation jam we did in 2006, there was about 44,000 different ideas that were submitted by people. We whittled them down to 10. Uh, and made an investment of about $100 million 
and bringing those ideas to market. And within 24 months, we had a billion dollars in revenues. And there were areas like smarter grids for electrical and power supplies, um, uh, innovations in microfinance that are paying. You, know, you wouldn't see them in the United States, but in, in developing economies in Southeast Asia, India, Africa, where, where very small payments uh, need, need to be processed very cost-effectively. Uh, smarter water, you know, smarter food. Yeah, we're, we're we're helping make making the 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 uh, supply chain for food a lot safer uh, uh, through some of the things that we're doing. Uh, smarter tra- traffic management. Uh, we're doing some remarkable things in some major cities around the world to help mitigate their their traffic problems, and, and that has so many myriad other um, uh, benefits besides just getting the cars around a little bit more quickly. Reduces pollution, increases health, incre- increases retail sales in downtown areas that might not have previously been able to get the foot traffic and so forth. So a lot of great great things that have come out of it that sort of become the backbone of our Smarter Planet strategy. And although we can't really get into it, it kind of brings up the connection that the, the extension of innovation into the social innovation and transformations and that, you know, though a lot of this often we talk about in the context of the workplace and, and products and things like that, that it also applies as much to the, the social parts of our lives and communities as well. So perhaps yeah, on Saturday night we can <laughs> touch on that topic as well. So, David, thank you so much for joining us in Creativity in Play today. Fantastic. It was a pleasure, and it went by nice and quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it always does. David Young is the head of global industries marketing for IBM, and he's also part of a keynote at the Advancing Creative Thinking Conference in Richfield, Connecticut, on April 28th. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dolbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, David, so much for joining us today. You're welcome.